You're listening to You Play A What, a podcast by a musician for musicians. My name is Vincent and I play the euphonium. Join me as I sit down with successful musicians to talk about their specialization, inspirations, and career developments. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to this episode of You Play A What. My guest today enjoys a good cup of coffee, baking sourdough bread, and on some days practicing his instrument. He is currently working as a freelance musician with majority of his work revolving around education and performance. On top of that, he hosts a podcast where Singaporean musicians share their own personal stories regarding their life and career. My episode today will be about myself. And I just have about enough speaking in third person, so I'm just going to snap out of it now. Uh, Well, I'm not sure how long this episode is going to go. Um, I might surprise myself. You know, this could be the longest episode out of all that I've recorded just by speaking about myself. So uh, before I get into the main bulk of content today, I would like to once again thank all of you who have been listening and supporting this podcast. I've learned a lot from speaking to all my guests and it has been extremely interesting to learn about how they got to where they are in their life currently. And I hope that through the podcast, you feel that connection with them as well. I would really like to hear from you and your thoughts about the podcast. So feel free to send me a message over at Instagram or Facebook, or you can even email me if you want to. So and why I decided to do an episode about myself, I think after doing 10 interviews with different people, and in fact, 10 interviews with 13 musicians altogether, it has given me some time to reflect on what they have said and my current state of life and what I've been through as well. So I thought it's a good time for me to put things into perspective and to just kind of share with uh, everybody what my uh, musical journey has been like and what are my thoughts about potentially working in Singapore and having a career as a musician. So uh, before we get into all that kind of stuff about my musical journey and uh, my career, I would just like to start on uh, why I started this podcast. So I think the first reason why I started a podcast is because I enjoy listening to a podcast and I think it's a very unique way of connecting with uh, listeners and for people to share their stories. It is a little bit like a radio show, but except you get to really control the type of content and uh, topics of interest that uh, you want to listen to as compared to a a normal radio show, which, you know, out of a a 30-minute segment, there might only be, you know, five to 10 minutes that you're interested in. And uh, I love listening to podcasts when I'm traveling uh, from uh, point to point. One of my favorite podcasts is actually The Brass Junkies, hosted by former Boston Brass members, Andrew Hitz and Lance LeDuc. Brass players should totally check this out. They interview uh, professional brass players in uh, the USA and there are over like hundreds of episodes there. So most of the time, the names that you can think of, I mean the American uh, brass players that you can think of, probably are already interviewed by them. And it's very, very funny. It's uh, super interesting. So you should definitely, uh, definitely check them out. 
and they're actually one of my main uh, inspirations to start a podcast. Apart from that, I also get my football news from uh, for my football club that I follow through a podcast channel. So um, there's a podcast by the Liverpool Echo, which reports on the news and match analysis of uh, Liverpool FC. So I follow that as well. And I think that it's a very, um, yeah, I just enjoy getting my news from there. Not not everybody might enjoy it, but for me, certainly, um, yeah, I just like getting my news from there. And there are also other podcasts by comedians, which I listen to every now and then, you know, when I don't want to think so much or don't want to listen to all the brass talks and sports and all that kind of stuff, then I listen to something that's a little bit more lighthearted. When you're, if you're listening to this, definitely you have already started listening to podcasts and I would suggest that you look um, beyond this channel and into some other channels as well for different kinds of uh, content and input. Uh, secondly, I think it is a good way for Singaporean musicians to share their story and I think um, higher music education in uh, Singapore is still in its early development. And I've just uh, caught up with an old friend this past week. And, and we were talking about how music education is really still in its infancy in Singapore. And I, I can't speak for other instruments, but certainly for winds and brass. Over the last few years, there are many musicians that went abroad for their studies. They are just starting to return home to Singapore and most of them are looking to contribute to the local music scene or e either that they've managed to get a full-time job somewhere else out of Singapore. And I think for um, many of us who are back here trying to contribute to the music scene, what we are seeking for are really just opportunities to showcase our work. And I think more opportunities for local musicians would also increase the quality of the uh, productions and performance of local musicians. Unfortunately, at this point in time, I'm not able to directly provide musicians with opportunities uh, to uh, perform, but what I hope is uh, to give them a platform to share their stories, and perhaps if people listen to these stories, then some doors might eventually open up for them um, to do a little bit more work that they are passionate about and then uh, lastly it's to provide an insight for potential music students current music students and professional musicians so uh, when i decided to study music many years ago there were not many people that i could talk to for advice because my social circle was uh, pretty much revolved around my school band speaking to my band directors uh, at that point was very useful he offered very sound advice, but apart from that, there was not too many people who I can speak to to just get their perspective and for me to manage my expectation of entering a music school. On top of that, I think that music students who, who studied or is studying locally or abroad can relate to some of the stories shared by different guests because we have all been through difficult times in our lives with regards to our musical developments. Uh, topics like uh, self-doubt, insecurities about your playing, stress during performance, homesickness, or rude awakenings are all very prevalent in a musician's career. So you are not 
the only one that feels this way and I hope that hearing other musicians going through the same thing will provide you some form of comfort and that you are not alone in this and definitely there is a way to work through all these problems and issues. Yeah, so these are basically uh, my thought process on uh, why I decided to start a podcast. And for future episodes, what you can expect more is basically just more interviews with Singaporean musicians. And perhaps uh, I will start to talk to people who has embarked on a music education, but is now working in a field that is unrelated to music and to talk about how they have uh, pivoted from being um, going through something that is so niche like music education and conservatory training into something that is applicable perhaps in the corporate world or their own business practices and whatever they are involved in at the moment. So I'm quite excited for that and hopefully you would be interested in these new episodes. So the next thing I would like to talk about now is of course the timeline of my music education and my career. And I'll go in-depth into some of the highlights during each of the stage of my education. So um, to go back to the beginning, we have to go back to my primary school days when I joined the primary school brass band. I was 10 years old when I joined the brass band and I had not picked up any instrument prior to that. So my music training really started then. I had no piano training and whatnot. Why I decided to join the band was they had mass recruitment session where all the students were being brought into the band room and then the band instructors will ask you to do a specific task. And if you were proficient in those very simple tasks, then you are recommended to join the band. Uh, you're not forced to join the band, but they will recommend that you, you join the band. So the task I was given was really simple. It was just one task. And uh, the band instructor basically just asked me if I could just blow uh, raspberries. So could I just go like flap my lips? So I just went quite naturally and easily. And he just recommended me to join the band. On top of that, the band had just uh, come off uh, a gold award uh, at at the SYF the year before. So everyone was really excited. And then uh, without much thought, I just left science club and I joined the band. Of course, uh, understand uh, we all understand the, the difficulties when we first picked up an instrument. Um, back then, I didn't think that it was going to be that difficult. So after a couple of weeks, of course, the thought of quitting and joining something else uh, came up to my mind. It didn't help that the band instructors were really quite uh, fierce and, and strict. And I was new and I didn't know I couldn't do some of the things that they were asking me to do. And they were a little bit impatient. After a while, I just told my mom that I I don't think I, this is for me. I don't want to go to band practice anymore. Uh, then I was told by my mom that oh, you've made this decision to join the band. You must have uh, own up to it and have some kind of responsibility. So that wasn't what I expected. And then on, on top of that, um, the, the teachers also uh, talked me into staying so I stayed in the band for uh, a longer period of time and of course uh, things started to get a little bit easier and a little bit better I started to enjoy myself a little bit more it is actually it it was very exciting I would say my uh, my time in the primary school brass band apart from the very rough beginning 
pretty much after that, it was a, a lot of fun, a lot of projects. So obviously they had come off a gold award from SYF in the year 2000. I joined in year 2001. So we were basically preparing for the SYF for the year 2002. And we also achieved a gold award in the year 2002. But on top of that, we were also the, uh, I forgot it was five or six, uh, the top five or six primary school uh, bands, wind bands or brass bands combined into this bracket um, during that SYF. So that was um, my first SYF. And I kind of, you know, when you are part of this uh, SYF for the first time and you get such a good result, then you tend to think that this is a very normal result, that gold is perhaps not very difficult and not very challenging, which of course, in my later years, I find to be not true. And so, yeah, we were doing very well. The band was doing very well. And of course, but at the end, we were not the top band for that year. Um, and ultimately, the top band award went to the legendary Mahabudi school band, which we all know is excellent and extremely consistent over the last, I say, 20 years. You know, very, very incredible work done by the band instructors uh, over, over there. So uh, apart from that, so that happened during, say, the April of the year 2002. And then because of what we have achieved, somehow we were able to convince the school to book the Esplanade Concert Hall. And we became the first primary school to put up a concert at the Esplanade Concert Hall. Uh, I remember very clearly the name of the concert was called Carpe Diem, which was, I believe, in Latin, Seize the Day. So um, it wasn't a very serious concert. It was a lot of arrangements done by the band instructors. Uh, there was a section on different ethnic music. So there was like Chinese music, uh, there was Malay music, there was uh, Indian music. There was also a medley for, I think, music by Dick Lee which I, I believe uh, Dick Lee was also present in that concert. Somehow, the band instructors managed to get uh, in touch with him and he was there to watch the concert. There was also uh, a segment on, on Latin medley. And I remember very clearly that um, it was more than just a sit-down concert. There was a lot of movement. There was a lot of dancing, uh, moving the instrument up and down. So it was really kind of like a full show. And, on, and also, during that concert, we were joined by our then MP. He came and sang a song together. I think it was uh, Moon Represent My Heart. Uh, and he is a, is a Malay MP, basically, uh, singing a Chinese song. So I thought that was that was pretty nice. Um, uh, same thing, I didn't understand the, the magnitude of what I was part of. You know, um, being able to play at the Esplanade at the age of 11... And that pretty much did not happen until basically years and years after that. I would say about 15 years. No, maybe not, not that long. Maybe about eight or nine years after that concert I did when I was in primary five that I, get, that I got another chance to play at the Esplanade. So um, it was good and everything was fine. And then towards my P6 year, I was offered, uh, no, actually during my P4, after the SYF, 
we um, our school started a new program where we would uh, we became a center or it was the start of us being a center uh, for the ABRSM practical exams. A couple of my bandmates were selected to be the pioneer lot of students to take these graded exams by ABRSM. So I was very lucky to be selected as one of them. And uh, I did my, my grade one in euphonium when uh, that September, I continued to take that exam uh, the following year when I was in P6. And then I continued up to our sec two. So, uh, but I did skip a few grades. So when I was in sec two, I took my uh, grade five in euphonium, basically. So um, all of these things that I was part of in my primary school, I think really um, kind of spoiled me in a way. But I, I didn't really understand how um, lucky I was to be awarded these awards and to be given this opportunity to play at Espinade, to a packed hall. Uh, yeah, everything just seemed very normal to me at that point of time. And yeah, so it was good, you know, my time in my primary school. And then after that, I moved on to my secondary school. Uh, so... Moving on to secondary school, I did start to contemplate whether I should change my CCA. Should I go into sports? Should I do something else? Or should I continue to stay with the band? Ultimately, I decided to continue to join the band. Um, it was a little bit different because um, in my primary school, I was playing in a brass band and I moved to a wind band in secondary school. So there was a bunch of new instruments that I didn't know what they were. You know, like clarinets, flutes. Uh, I'm seeing them for the up close for the first time. It was also a very interesting time for the school because the school had shifted from the east to the north. So uh, during this shift to the north, they stopped a year of intake of students. So it's basically like starting a new school in the north, right? In this new region. So the the intake above me was actually the first batch of students in the campus. So I was the second batch. So there were only uh, sec twos and me sec ones in the school at that point of time. At the point of time when I joined the band, I was always comparing it to my primary school band and my primary school um, experience. And I felt that it was a little bit underwhelming. But of course, uh, looking back now, it was not very fair to make that kind of comparisons just because this is a completely new group of people. I'm also very lucky that in this, uh, when I moved to the new school, I met a very particular Mr. Ting Xiang Hong, which I believe he doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, Xiang Hong was a year above me in the school, and he was also the section leader for the tuba and euphonium section. I, I must say that initially when I joined the band in secondary school, my attitude was really not great. Uh, I was late for the band practices and during Saturdays where it's a full day of band practice and the mornings usually ask uh, sectional time. I would skip out on the sectional and sleep in and only attend the band practices, the, the combined uh, band practice in the afternoon. So yeah, not something that I'm very, very proud of, to be honest. And my interest in pursuing music as uh, properly in NAFA really only came to me when I was in secondary three. And I think a big part of this has to do with 
the example that was set in front of me when I was in band by people like Xiang Hong and there are other members that were also turning up and practicing every single day. This just felt very normal to me that you would just turn up and, you know, go to the band room and just practice your instrument almost on a daily basis. And of course, the more I played, the more I hung out with them, the more I got interested in it, the more I wanted to do this as a career. Of course, at that point of time, I had no idea what I was signing up for to <laughs> to become a, uh, to embark on a, uh, or to have a career as a musician. Also, during that point of time, when I got interested, my school band purchased a large number of CDs, both solo CDs for different instruments, as well as a bunch of CDs by the Tokyo Kosei Wind Orchestra. So, of course, the legendary euphonium player in most of these recordings is the legendary Toru Miura. So I w- I'm a big fan and I, I will listen to, you know, his recordings with Frederick Fennell conducting of the second suite in F, uh, first suite and all this standard band repertoire with really, really beautiful euphonium lines. And I will always like aspire to that kind of playing. In terms of the solo CDs, I remember very clearly that there were two, the first two solo CDs that, were, that I managed to get my hands on from the band library was number one, the Shed Vision of Excellence by American euphonium player Roger Barron. I think uh, Roger Barron is a former principal euphonium of the Navy band or the Air Force band or the Marines band, one of the, the premier bands in the USA. I can't remember which one it is. And uh, secondly is uh, Continuum by Matt Trotman. These were the two CDs that really kind of opened my mind up to the possibilities of euphonium as a solo instrument. So that listening to especially the shared vision of excellence completely blew my mind. And I did, because of that, I got a little bit more curious. I started doing more research. I started getting my own materials like Arban, uh, Clark Studies, Bodokni's, uh, I, I wasn't studying with anyone properly at that time, but, you know, I was just reading forums and stuff like that. I was just, oh, this seems like very important text. So I would just like purchase them online. And I had no idea how to approach them or how to practice them. But I just thought that, you know, because I want to be serious in this, so I have to purchase all these things on my own uh, to show that I'm serious. But uh, on, on hindsight, I think I, I could have spent that money to have a few lessons. <laughs> Maybe that could, would have been a little bit more useful. Yeah, so um, then I started doing more research on euphoniums as well. So I researched on the different brands of instruments, the most expensive ones, what were their features, what were their specs. I also came into uh, contact with the recordings of, of course, Stephen Mead. And I started collecting a lot of his CDs. When I was 15, I think, I started purchasing a bunch of his CDs and I started listening to, to his playing, uh, which was very inspiring for me at, uh, at that point of my development. And also towards the very end of my secondary school time, I was involved in a brass ensemble called Just Brass Ensemble, which is not around anymore, unfortunately. So uh, during that point of time I was 16 and I also met a lot of the more experienced brass players when uh, Bunhua was still a bass trombonist when I met Sebastian Cole for the first time there I met Alwind 
also on the bass trombone and a bunch of other SNYO alumni. So it was great to hear all this uh, higher quality of brass playing as compared to mine. And, you know, it just made me want to go on, go and pursue this journey even more. So uh, post-secondary school, uh, I attended NAFA. It was quite clear to me <laughs> that I wanted to go on this path. Uh, similarly, uh, as much as I was able to do that, it was not without some issues convincing my parents. But I'm extremely lucky because I have three uh, elder siblings that were very supportive of what I wanted to do. And if not for them, speaking up for me and convincing my parents, I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing today. So yeah, I'm very, very thankful for that. I remembered my, my aspirations going into NAFA after my audition. Uh, I, I sat down with then uh, head of music, Mr. Richard Adams, and then conductor of the orchestra, uh, Volker Hatung. So just a short interview, they asked me, you know, what, what are your plans and what do you aspire to be um, <laughs> in, in the future? I remember I was very, very naive back then. I just told uh, Mr. Adams that, oh, um, I want to be a soloist. That was, <laughs> that was my aspiration. Which, of course, on, on hindsight, I think back now, um, very, very big claims. Uh, yeah, perhaps not the most um, realistic choice in um, a career out of music. So I remembered him telling me that, oh, then you got to, you ought to be working really, really, really hard to make this happen. And yeah, I perhaps took everything a little bit too easy back then, but now I understand uh, the meaning and why he said what he said. So um, I went to NAFA not really knowing what to expect, but I think what was great during that time was I think I had a very good relationship with my principal studies teacher, who is Freddie Sonderegger, former associate principal of the Singapore Symphony Orchestra. He was a great teacher and a lot of people think that, oh, you know, you studied with a trombonist, it must be very different and difficult. I think not a lot of people give him credit for how good a euphonium player he is. He is really one of its kind, you know, a very, very unique euphonium player, a very, very um, unique sound, um, musicality and approach to the instrument, which perhaps when I was learning under him, I did not quite appreciate, to be honest. Um, but on hindsight, looking back to his playing, I think, you know, that there's much more to be uh, admired about his playing. And I definitely learned a huge deal from him. And I think the first teacher plays such an important role in your musical developments. Uh, apart from that, I think what I really learned from Freddie was that he never once spoke bad about other professionals. As much as I knew, I, didn't, I did not know at that point of time what was happening, but I knew that perhaps his working environment wasn't the most friendly and easy, but at no point did he relay any sort of uh, negative information and said bad things about his colleagues. You know, he was always very professional. He, was, he always portrayed his colleagues in the best light which was something that now I look back again, I, I not easy, not easy to, to have that kind of 
professional image in front of your student to not be slating off uh, people who are not so nice to you. So I do appreciate where he's coming from. Of course, I caught up with him recently, once in Singapore and then a while back in uh, Switzerland as well, where we spoke a little bit more about this. And uh, yeah, so I learned about what was really going on in his life when he was uh, living in Singapore. Yeah, so um, Nafa time was great. I also met a lot of other very passionate musicians. Once again, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by a huge cohort of brass players above me and with me as well. So um, that was all great. I met uh, a lot of new friends, um, but I think most importantly it comes down to the relationship that I developed with my teacher and where I really start to treat music seriously. But I think at the same time, there were still a lot of uh, issues lingering in my playing, even at the end of my diploma. there were I was putting in a lot of hours, but perhaps not all the hours translated to uh, the way I played. So yeah, I mean, that was um, my time in NAFA, basically. Apart from the learning opportunities I had in NAFA, outside of school, I was part of a tuba quartet called Tuba Powerhouse. I think this group was the OG of Tuba Quartet in Singapore. I wasn't part of the founding member of the group. I was asked by Gabriel and Ignatius to join them after one of the Just Brass Ensemble concerts. And we pretty much rehearsed as much as we could during a period of two years. Then uh, school commitments started happening. And one by one, we started to enlist into army and the group just gradually became inactive. This was really my first introduction to chamber music and I had an amazing time uh, playing with this group of people. We did a few concerts here and there and they were also the reasons that I developed a library of tuba quartet music as well. Uh, during this time, I was also travelling out of Singapore to attend different euphonium festivals to learn from different euphonium players in the region or different euphonium players who were visiting the region. My first one was in uh, 2008, where I went to Tuba Mania in Bangkok, organized by Steve Rosé, the principal tuba player of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. Uh, I was there with Gabriel and Tin Hao to attend the festival. Um, during the festival, I met Adam Fry and Matthew Van Emmerich for the first time, uh, Adam from the USA and Matthew from uh, Australia. Uh, my teacher, Freddie, was also there, but I think... Uh, the most important person that I met during that trip is someone by the name of Bunyarit, also known as T. Uh, so T was a first-year student at Mahindo University when we first met, and he was a participant at the Tuba Mania Festival as well. Uh, there was a uh, At that point of meeting him, that was the start of a friendship that lasted until today. It was really crazy because uh, from the point of meeting him, we fast-forward six months, him and I were on our way to Atlanta, Georgia to attend uh, what was then called the International Euphonium Institute uh, organized by Adam Fry. We flew from our respective countries and uh, for myself, the entire flight was really <laughs> one to forget. Uh, I was flying in one of those older planes from United Airways where there are actually no personal entertainment system. So um, how, how it's designed is that you get a shared entertainment system over a couple of rows. So you had a small monitor that's just attached to this, uh, the ceiling of the plane right above the aisles. 
So yeah, you had we had no control uh, over what we were watching. So and that entire flight was from Hong Kong to Chicago, more than probably over ten hours. So yeah, really really difficult. Uh, <laughs> couple of hours there, and I don't sleep very well on the plane. So yeah, not the best experience. But uh, eventually I made it to the festival, and I must say, uh, up to today, it is still the best festival that I've ever been to. I completely blew my mind listening to the quality of the students and the faculty, and everything was so organized. Everything was running on time. Nothing was late, and yeah, it was so enjoyable. And on top of that, I heard David Charles play live for the first time. <laughs> and I think I must have been smiling the entire time throughout his recital. Uh, actually, there, there is a, a video of his recital on YouTube. And I, I'll just share it in the show notes. Um, yeah, it's him playing on stage and I was somewhere in the audience, probably like first or second row. Um, I also met Roger Barron during this festival. Uh, if you just remember me talking about him during my secondary school days, I listened to uh, one of his CDs. Uh, and yeah, it was just great to meet him in person and have a lesson uh, with him as well. Apart from meeting all these faculty members, I also made a few friends in the USA who are also at current times doing very, very well in their careers, winning uh, jobs, in the uh, military bands in the USA and also um, winning competitions in uh, in the USA as well. So that happened in June of 2008. Shortly after that, uh, in August 2008, I went to the Jeju Brass Competition. Where, uh, so bear in mind that at this point of time, I was just 18 years old, right? Second year student. At, uh, in fact, I think entering second year in NAFA. So um, I never intended to get anywhere in the competition, but when I arrived there and I heard the other competitors, I just, I, I kind of confirmed that to myself that I wasn't going to pass round one. Uh, when I was in Jeju, I met another 18-year-old euphonium player from Belgium, which happened to go by the name of Glenn Van Loy. Uh, so yeah, you can imagine how stiff the competition was. Apart from Glenn, I was very fortunate to be hanging out with uh, Raphael Rosé, uh, who is the son of uh, Steve Rosé, which I have met in Bangkok before, uh, Pep Buguera from Spain, an absolute machine and a wonderful and beautiful euphonium player and uh, the eventual winner of the competition for that year, and uh, Gong Hongliang, currently the Deputy Secretary General of the China National Low Brass Committee. So the level of the competition was really, really high and it completely blew my mind. It's like the level when I, that I experienced at IEI was high, but this was like completely at another level. Uh, after that, I pretty much knew what was going on around the world and the general standard that I have to aspire to in order for me to, you know, be the soloist that I want to be. And so I just spent... Um, my final year in diploma, kind of practicing. Yeah, post-NAFA was difficult. Uh, towards the end of my NAFA uh, journey, I developed this back pain, which I, I didn't know. I kind of brushed it aside because I was also preparing for the my recitals and, and all that kind of stuff. I thought that, oh, you know what, if I had to like take 
time out of the instrument. I didn't want to take any time out. So I kind of pushed through it. And uh, the back pain got really, really bad um, nearing my enlistment date. So I went to had a proper check on it. And then I found that I had a protruding disc uh, in my lower back that was uh, compressing on my nerve that was affecting my uh, left leg. So I, I did some physiotherapy, but it was not really working. It was not getting better. So I, in the end, I had to go for a surgery. Uh, for my protruding disc where they shave off the protruding part of the disc and that was a, a very very unique experience um, <laughs> going into surgery at that kind of age um, I remembered I was really really nervous and afraid going into the the operation theater and then uh, ultimately when I was in the theater I remembered um, I was going to be put to sleep and a lot of things crossed my mind before that, like, oh, what if I, I couldn't go to sleep? And what if I was awake and I, could, I couldn't feel the pain, but I could feel what they were doing? So, uh, but I, I, all I remembered was, they said to me, uh, Mr. Tan, uh, we're going uh, to give you the, the gas to kind of put you asleep now. Uh, if you could just um, count back from uh, five or three. And I remembered, sure, I said three, two, and then the next thing I realized was someone gently tapping my face and said, uh, Mr. Tan, Mr. Tan, operation is over. It's time to uh, wake up now. And the operation was completed. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so that that happened. Uh, why I got that slip disc, I, I wasn't sure. I, I didn't really dig very deep into it. Could be um, bad posture during my uh, playing. Could be bad posture generally when I'm sitting yeah so that I'm, I'm really not sure what caused it but yeah so that happened and that delayed my uh, national service for a little bit and because of that uh, I got a very low pass status which means that I wasn't able to go to the SAF band and I was uh, a clerk for two years in my life uh, so that was also the point where I started to realize that perhaps uh, my life shouldn't revolve so heavily around music. So uh, I won't go into deep detail on how I feel about uh, my national service time, but I did speak to Mervyn um, about this in our episode. If you're interested, you can go to the episode and you can have a listen to, to my thoughts about national service. I think I spoke briefly about that with uh, Yao Chong as well on how to cope with entering or being assigned to a unit that is not the SAF band. Yeah, two years went by. And I went to the RNCM after that to pursue my degree. So um, this was a very, very interesting period uh, in my life where I learned so much about myself. I also um, learned so much about life and how we look at things in general. So um, it, it has been my uh, dream school, the RNCM, for many, many years. Perhaps my next when I was planning for my next step uh, in Lafa, my dream was to just go to the RNCM, right? Because that was, for me, the place that I wanted to be, you know? Go to the UK where the euphonium kind of really flourished and to learn from uh, the best. And uh, in my first year, I, I would say that to a certain extent, um, I might have unreal expectation of the RNCM. When I entered the school, after a while, it felt a little bit underwhelming in terms of 
the whole experience. And I think majority of it comes down to um, my relationship with my principal studies teacher. So um, in my second week, in my second lesson with my, my teacher, what happened was um, in, in my first week, I was given some uh, homework to prepare for, the, the, for week two. So in week one, I was given some homework to prepare for week two. So uh, in that homework, there was uh, a huge amount of things. There were repertoire, there were attitudes, there were there were scales, there were many different things. Yeah. So when it came week two during the lesson, I did not prepare everything up to a very good standard. Some of it was better prepared than others. And when I was asked, like, what have I prepared for lesson this week? Being me, being... Um, I, I don't know, is it my upbringing uh, in, in Asian culture or just my personality in general? I wasn't, I didn't dare to tell my teacher that I didn't prepare everything. So I just told him that, oh, I prepared uh, everything, uh, a bit of everything. And of course, uh, as the lesson went by, towards the end, I was pulling out materials that wasn't as uh, polished as what I have played in the first 30 to 45 minutes or so. So um, he heard that. Uh, it was kind of like, I must say, it was like borderline sight reading kind of standard. So he was not happy when, it, when he heard that. And he said to me that, you know, you come all this way and you, uh, you're just kind of wasting your time. You're wasting your money and to, to play like that during the lesson. And I think that really kind of shook me um, and I, I wasn't expecting that kind of treatment. And I mean, you could say that I am <laughs> a softy that is not able to stand up to this uh, kind of tough love. So um, that uh, really, really kind of had a huge impact. So my approach to my entire first year was to just practice, practice, practice and practice. And what I realized as well is a lot of times when I entered lesson, I was very nervous. I did not know what to expect from my teacher. So um, the, the quality of the lesson also de uh, kind of depends on the particular mood he was in on that day. There were lessons that I went in and I didn't play particularly well, but everything was very positive. Everything was very supportive. There were days that I was playing okay, accurate, representation of my preparation and I would clip something and he would just snap and he would just you know uh, start lo losing it and, and scream at me and, and there would be days that I could do nothing right in the lesson so it was stressful in that sense like not knowing what to expect in the lesson and um, but I, I never once thought that it was his fault you know, I always thought that it was me. I had to practice more. I wasn't, I wasn't working hard enough and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so um, it, I, I pretty much had, had no life, you know, uh, in, in my first year. I was just practicing. I was afraid to not play. I was afraid to not practice. And it wasn't a very uh, positive experience at the beginning. So my first year went by. I came back to Singapore and 
um, of course, it was nice to uh, re reconnect with uh, everyone again. And this was, uh, you, you don't, uh, for me, I don't realize how much I miss Singapore until I came back. Because you kind of get used to living abroad and then you come back and then you realize, oh yes, actually I do miss that. And by then I was um, in a relationship with my girlfriend, which I'm very, very grateful uh, for her and her support over the years and for her to endure the four years of long distance relationship. So we actually uh, got together uh, at the start when I enlisted into uh, national service. So when I left for the UK, we were close to probably in our second to third year of the relationship. And she's been very supportive of everything. My second year was actually the most eventful year in terms of... Um, what I did for competitions and winning stuff and things like that. But in general, out of the four years of my studies, my second year was the worst. And I was extremely unmotivated and defeated uh, in my second year. So immediately after I came back to um, the RNCM for my second year, I started questioning myself a lot. I started questioning myself, asking myself questions like, what I was embarking on, was it all worth it? You know, was it worth it to leave my family behind? Was it worth it to leave everything behind and just do this uh, and pursue this study, which apparently now I realize that I wasn't very good at. And do I want to be doing this for the next 40 years of my life? There was a lot of questions and... um. I was lucky to have become good friends with a fellow euphonium uh, student. He was pursuing his master's degree then. He's an American student called uh, Alex. So uh, I was getting, I was quite close to Alex and Alex could really relate and understood what I was going through because he was thinking about the same thing as well. And in fact, he has made up his mind that after this master's course at the RNCM, he was going to go back to the US and start a new bachelor's degree which is unrelated to music. So um, yeah, there was a lot of uh, negativity and uh, thoughts during my second year and I thought to myself that okay, I think I'm going to finish this degree and maybe I'm not going to do music after I go back to Singapore. I'm just going to do something else. My relationship with my teacher worsened in my second year, which really didn't help. I think one particular incident that um, that pushed it over the edge was that one of our one of my batchmate was suffering from a, a lip injury. And um he 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 was really struggling and um at, at some point the, my teacher and, and this friend of mine, they made some breakthrough. They made some breakthrough. He was only able to play very, very few notes because of the lip injury. But all of a sudden, the higher octave started to open up in that particular lesson. So um, he was going to go away. My teacher was going to go away for two weeks. So he instructed my friend to practice for two hours a day for two weeks. And then they'll assess the situation again uh, once he was back. So... Um, on day two, my friend came to me and he said to me that, you know, um, Vincent, my my chops are, are, I can't play again. And it's, yeah, it's, I'm really struggling to practice. So 
the advice that I offered to him was that, oh, you know, if, if that's the case, um, you should just listen to your body. And if you feel like you can't do it, maybe you don't practice. So that was what I could offer as a friend uh, in terms of support. Because, you know, if he didn't feel like it was right for him to practice, it's difficult for me to tell him to just go ahead and practice some more. And on top of that, um, his uh, Alexander Technique teacher was also giving him advice like oh, maybe two hours a day was a little bit too much. So uh, fast forward to two weeks when uh, my teacher came back, my friend and my teacher had a lesson and my teacher realized that my friend had not practiced for two hours every day. So he, he was not very happy and he started asking and putting pressure on him. And this friend is from Thailand. So his command of the language at that point of time was okay, but not great. But the teacher was putting a lot of pressure on him to ask him, why did you decide to not practice? So eventually he cracked under the pressure and he said that, oh, uh, I spoke to Vincent and Vincent told me uh, not to practice. So that was the, the answer that he, he gave to my teacher. Um, not great, <laughs> but what he did at least was to inform me of what he had said to my teacher. So I knew what to expect when I entered the, um, the room for my lesson. So we had a conversation and he was basically kind of uh, going at me. He was telling me things like, oh, um, you know, who, uh, what is your experience with this sort of lip injury? You know, are you an expert in, uh, in this field? You know, uh, why do you advise him to not practice? You know, if he wants to study with you, he can study with you. You know, he doesn't have to study with me and all, all that kind of stuff. But um, for, for most parts of my um, time with my teacher, learning from him, I have always took it in my stride. When he, he gives me like feedbacks and he if he was being honest with me, I would always think that it is my fault. But... In this situation, I, I couldn't sit there and take this um, sort of uh, allegations that he was throwing on me. So I, I stood, up my, stood up for myself and I said that all I was offering was support for my friend and nothing else. You know, I wasn't, my intentions was not to undermine him. And also, apart from me, there were also professional advice by the Alexander Technique teachers to perhaps not do so much practice. So um, that um, event really kind of uh, changed the way I looked at things. And it made me uh, look at um, a person for who he is rather than these other things that um, are not that important, right? For example, if someone is to be a very good instrumentalist or a great musician, does not translate and does not make them become a good person or a nice person. So that really kind of uh, made me realize that I was putting this teacher up on a pedestal and I didn't want to do that anymore. So at that point of time, I had made up my mind that in the following year, I was going to move to another teacher. Yeah, and... Apart from, from this incident, what I was starting to see within the, the entire department as well is that many students that were studying with my teacher were very negative and were not very motivated to practice and not very excited about music in general. 
Whereas um, the students in another teacher studio, they seem to be a little bit more relaxed about things. They seem to be a little bit more uh, pro um, happy to pursue music as a career and also to just, um, yeah, they're just more positive and have a more positive outlook in general. So I was really starting to think like, why is this happening? Why is it that most of um, the students that was under uh, teacher A was feeling negative and most of the students under teacher B was a bit more relaxed and approaching music more positively? So this led me to think that perhaps this is not 100% down to me. I mean, I definitely have a part to play for my uh, lack of progress or inability to do certain things and to play at a certain level. I must say that ultimately it's down to me, but I think also not 100% uh, down to me as well. So I made the change. Um, it was a very difficult change because there was a lot of uh, human element in this like what is the consequences of uh, switching a teacher? Uh, would I burn the bridge? Would I affect the relationship between uh, him and I? Yeah, so, but ultimately I thought I have to do what is um, good for me and important for myself. And I did that and I made a change. And then my third and fourth year became so much more positive and normal. I also started taking care of myself a little bit better. In my second year, I was eating a lot of pizzas. I was calling a lot of takeout. I was gaining a lot of weight. So those of you who saw me uh, at the end of my second year, you would see that, you know, I'm basically, you know, there's a lot more of me in the world than it is right now. So yeah, in my third and fourth year, I started taking care of myself. I started to take time off. I started going around Europe to visit friends, to see the world a little bit more. And my outlook into life actually became a lot better. And the music playing and the, the euphonium playing, in short, also for me became uh, much more enjoyable than, than before. This is not, um, <laughs> this is by no means the, the entire story of what went down. So, yeah, I mean, if you are interested to know what happened uh, in depth, you can always come and speak to me. And, you know, we can, I, I can share with you what I've been through. Of course, uh, not all is doom and gloom during my time in Manchester. Maybe just perhaps the weather. <laughs> but uh, the highlight of my time in college was the time I spent with my euphonium quartet, the Brass Compass. Uh, the name Origins came from our various countries of origin, with Adam representing Australia as South, Maria representing Latvia as North, Seth representing the UK as West and myself representing Singapore as uh, East. And uh, not to boast, but in less than a year of playing together, we had won the iTech Chamber Music Prize as well as the Philip Jones Brass Ensemble Prize at the RNCM. Uh, so the iTech, of course, is the International Tuba Euphonium Conference held in mostly the USA uh, once every two years. So uh, we won that award in 2016. So uh, we continue to play as a quartet on and off up to the point that we graduated from the college. Uh, it is really a shame that the quartet did not really take off. Uh, although I did bring them here to Singapore to perform uh, in a low brass festival, uh, I think in our third year of studies. Um, apart from that, I'm also very lucky to be part of the Roberts Bakery Band from my first to third year of studies. 
Uh, the members of the band really made me feel at home and I particularly enjoyed sitting next to Ruth on the baritone, who was also uh, our staff accompanist for the Euphonium Studio class. Or many other uh, very pleasant experience and one of it was uh, this absolute privilege to hear Daniel Thomas perform on a regular basis and I'm in constant awe of his control over the instrument and everything he does on the instrument just seem so easy and effortless. So uh, for those of you who do not know, uh, Daniel Thomas is uh, a batchmate of mine at RNCM. And I think in our third year of studies, he took over as a principal euphonium of the Black Duck Band and has been assuming that position since then and seems to be really making that seat become his own. Uh, and of course, lastly, uh, my housemate for two years, Kelvin, who always... Uh, allow me to take full control of the kitchen and I do appreciate that because I do do a lot of cooking and sometimes I make a big mess especially uh, when I bake bread or I make pasta where there's a lot of flour sort of flowing, uh, floating around so uh, thank you for that uh, if any of you are listening I want to take this opportunity to thank all of you for making my time in the UK a little bit more bearable and that much more special so thank you so much all of you yeah, so I think that pretty much sums up my education journey. And since 15 July 2018, I've returned to Singapore. So I've been back in Singapore for just over two years now and loving it and really sort of seeing the potential that this country has to offer in terms of what we can do as musicians. So... um. Just a quick run through about what I've been doing since um, returning back to Singapore. So from the back end of 2018, since I came back, uh, very, very little work, to be honest. Um, a lot of it is down uh, is really just networking with people and letting people know that I'm back. So my work really just started maybe around October to December, where I was doing some uh, freelance teaching in secondary school. Um, 2019 would be the full com uh, complete year where I started working in Singapore. A bulk of my work revolves around teaching and performing. So teaching is pretty much all year round with mostly secondary schools going in as euphonium or sometimes euphonium and tuba. Um... I did not do any band conducting or a junior band conducting and that kind of stuff. So it's all sort of uh, instrumental tutorship and some private teaching as well every, every now and then. Uh, some performances as a soloist, some performances in a wind band and some unique projects. So uh, one of the highlights or some of the highlights uh, during 2019 was around early to mid-February, just before Chinese New Year. That was like an extremely busy period for me. So I was involved in this project organized by the Orchestra Collective, um, but it was not a full band project. It was part of the Light Tonight Festival. Um, so the title of the project is called The Cure for Pain is in the Pain. So it was a... A curated set of uh, poems together with unaccompanied music. 
So it was it explored this kind of different um, uh, spectrum of pain. So that was a really, really fun project. The audience was set very sparse in the concert hall. Concert hall was pitch black and we were all stationed at different parts of the concert hall to, to perform. So uh, personally, I was up in the circles. So that was uh, really, really interesting. And following that was, I think, the, the band weekend for the Cool Classics Month at Esplanade. So that I did a solo performance with Novo Wins where I played uh, Believe Me with all the endearing young charms. It's basically a very popular um, theme and variation solo for um, a Euphonium and, and Band. And uh, apart from that, I was also involved in uh, this particular music organization called Quattro Music Organization. Uh, they are started by a few pianists. Most of them are from Indonesia and I managed to get to know one of the, the founders when I was studying in uh, RNCM. Her name is Cindy. So um, they are all from... Uh, the Most of the founders are all from Medan. So they, start, they started this uh, new sort of uh, initiative in Medan and we went there, we did a concert together and that was really, really fun. And it was uh, very, very nice to, to play the euphonium for a, a group of people that didn't quite know what the instrument was. Yeah. And then lastly, it was also the formation of uh, my quartet that I play in called Ko. I, I really do appreciate the efforts and what each of them uh, bring to the table for the quartet. I think it's been such an amazing um, opportunity for me to just um, learn from them and to see things from each of their perspective to improve my own perspective as a musician and the way that I listen to music. So uh, that's all great. So that is like my uh, 2019 summed up into a couple of minutes. And then, of course, the downside of 2019 was also because I was just, I was not trying to force to get a lot of work. What I was trying to do was to just see what was coming to me and how uh, average year would look like. So uh, the initial part, the first couple of months of 2019 was great. I was extremely busy because it was SYF season and lots of tutorship and stuff like that. Of course, that changed very drastically after SYF, which was post-April. And in June, where I only had probably less than 10 hours of work for the entire month and into July as well. So that uh, really made me think about a lot of things, whether I should continue to stay in Singapore or not, whether I should go and study some more, whether I should leave the country, whether I should do something different. So, but I think it is important to, to also realize that in our field of work, that our work, work schedule and timing is not like other industries, where, which is a lot more consistent. For us, it's like, it can be quite sporadic towards the middle and especially holiday time and the end of the year where there's not a lot of band practice and it is up to us then to decide, you know, what are you going to do to supplement 
uh, income and to do more work. Maybe this is time to catch up on practice. Maybe this is time to learn some new repertoire provided that you are able to do that without worrying so much about your income, of course. Yeah, so that was uh, there was a little bit of uncertainty in June, but that, of course, got better as uh, the, the year went by as well. And seeing that not only I was in that position, but other people were in that position as well. So uh, moving on to 2020, uh, I would say more teaching. I've took on uh, uh, the role as junior band instructor at St. Stephen's School. And that, along with my recent appointment as a junk lecturer at NAFA to teach euphonium. So uh, these are the two new sort of big engagements that I took on for the year 2020. And then the rest of my other days are still the same sort of um, uh, tutorship work that I do in secondary schools. And then, of course, some work with private students as well. Um, in terms of performance, uh, most part of this year has been with Cole. Of course, we know that because of this entire pandemic situation, live performances are very few and far between. Yeah, I'm just glad that we are still uh, going strong and we have an upcoming project that's coming up that is very, very exciting. And uh, we can't wait to just share this um, idea of the project with all of you. My mindset upon returning back to Singapore was to just test water. I wasn't sure if I was going to be definitely settling down here or if I should just take a year off, uh, like take a year off studying and then work and then go back to study again. So, I th but I think right now my, my mind is pretty much uh, made up. I would say that I'll be staying here until I feel like I have maxed out on the potential that I can do. And the next step for me is to really um, further my education, to, to broaden my, my skill set or perspective or to increase my potential. Then perhaps it is time to look into going back to school again. And whether the next step is still in music, I mean the next uh, phase of education would still be in music or in something else, that is also uh, an important question. To sum up this entire uh, session, I, I would just like to give some thoughts of uh, career prospects of music students or musicians in Singapore. As a euphonium player, I'm forced to think a little bit out of the box in a sense that I, I could not pursue that path of like auditioning for an, for an orchestra and getting an orchestra job, a, a stable income coming in every month. Of course, there are options uh, locally to um, join up with um, different organizations that would allow you to be a musician and at the same time earn a very uh, consistent and stable income. But I think very importantly for music students is that do not feel that you have to be funneled into a particular field of work in the music industry if that is not your interest. So a lot of people would say that um, as a win or brass musician, Okay, I can't speak for the other instrument, is that we either go into, for example, band directing, or maybe we, we sign on to the SF Central Band or the uh, Singapore Police Force Band. So these are very two good career options, but definitely we are not limited to these options of either joining up to these organizations 
or going to band directing. The question is really, what is your interest? With your interest, we have to also think that what is the message behind the interest that you want to share? Nowadays, I think being a good musician that's proficient on the instrument is only a necessity, right? It's no longer a selling point in the, the work that you do. What is the selling point is really the message and the niche of what you are doing. Find the message that you want to communicate and find out what you are passionate about. When the quality of the work is high and the message is strong, I believe that good things will happen. You know, So really ask yourself, what are you passionate about? What is the point of your projects and what is the point of your initiatives? Is it going to be easy? It is not going to be easy. Is it going to be fulfilling? I believe so. Is it going to uh, make you learn a lot about your career and who you are as a person? Definitely. Are you going to succeed the first time? We don't know, you know, but do not be afraid to look into other options. Do not be afraid to do something that is different from other people. And in fact, if you can be different and be unique in your own uh, person and in what you can offer as a person, as a musician, and as an artist, that would really set you up for success, I think. It is when you feel like you have to blend in with the majority of the people that is then you really start to struggle to find work and to find a niche and to find the opportunities. I take pride in my current portfolio and I think there are many other musicians out there that are doing things that they are very, very passionate about. This is really the, the way to go, you know. Um, of course, if you feel like the, the two options, the two main options that I said really, really uh, interest you and you're pas very passionate about that, then good, go for that. But I would say that this is not everything, right? Take time, uh, explore, learn about your interests, learn about what you want to say, learn about your message, learn about uh, the work that you're passionate about. And I'm sure good things will happen. And before you know it, you know, uh, I have spent around an hour speaking about myself and my thoughts. And I think that's about enough for all of you who have been listening. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of You Play A What with just myself. Hopefully it doesn't bore you too much. And on that note, we're going to sign off on this episode of You Play A What. You have been listening to You Play A What, hosted by Vincent Tan. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends if you feel so inclined. The theme music for the podcast is entitled Midnight Affairs and is composed by Algirdas Matonis and recorded by Vincent Tan. Thank you so much for listening to You Play or What? Until next time. Thank you.